Anyway, okay, so why don't we, uh, let's start off with a little fun. Um, one of the things that I like, that's a good icebreak. We try to be real around here, really, real, real. <laughs> uh, one of the things I like is um, like problem solving stuff, you know, like, uh, so if, if I'm sitting on the couch and, you know, watching, I don't know, a sporting event or something, I'll do like a Sudoku or things like that, you know. But I like riddles. Do you guys like riddles? Do you want some riddles right now? Let's do a few riddles. There's a purpose to all this, okay? So <laughs> here's the first one, ready? Um, what starts with a P, ends with an E, and has more than a thousand letters? You can shout it out if you know it. Post office. Post office. Man, good job, Michael. That's really good. Impressive. All right, here's another one. What loses its head in the morning but gets it back at night? A pillow. Oh. <laughs> How about this one? This is an easy one. What has three feet but can't walk? A yardstick. Yeah, that's a good one. How about this? What's very easy to get into but hard to get out of? Trouble. That's right. Very good. You, you know that from experience. <laughs> He's got busted. Okay, this, this one's my favorite. What's the coolest letter in the alphabet? B, because it's surrounded by AC. <laughs> Bam. All right. Here's an easy one. Two more. What's round on both sides but high in the middle? Ohio. Man, Dan, you got, you got these going on, man. You're, a riddler. You're the Riddler. <laughs> All right, la last one. What's, what can be swallowed but can also swallow you? Pride. Yeah, let's stop right there. Let's stop right there because I hate pride. Let's talk about it now. I think like, if there's one thing that I come across... And, and now I love people, but if there's one thing that I come across in people that can absolutely drive me crazy, it's pride, right? Like people that think they're better than me or they're better than other people, you know, just because of whatever. Maybe it's because of how they look or their education or, or whatever it is. That kind of thing drives me crazy. And, and I'm not talking about like jokingly proud people, you know, or ar jokingly arrogant people. Like if you've ever met the former senior pastor of Grace Church, Bob Combs, you would know him because he introduces himself this way as the good-looking pastor. And so you'll say, hey, how you doing today, Bob? And he'll say, very good-looking, how are you? And you're like, okay, like I get it. Obviously, you're kidding. <laughs> Obviously, right? But, so like, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about like people that joke around that way, but like legitimately people that, that are proud people and they think they're better than others. I think this is why... Like, racism has always disgusted me, you know? Like, you think, like you, you think you're better than somebody else because of the color of your skin? 
or because you're, you know, because of the country of your origin, like you think that makes you better than somebody else. Like that kind of stuff never made sense to me. And so pride, like I think about like pride and arrogance and I I could spot it a mile away. I bet you guys can too. You know, somebody who is a proud person who thinks they're better than others or their way is always right. Like we can see it a mile away. And I think it's the most unattractive quality that people can have, right? Like it is just straight up ugly. And you know, you know where Marsha and I see pride the most, like the place that we see pride the most? Right there (laughs) in the mirror. And it's like something we all struggle with, right? Like as, as ugly and obvious as it is to see in other people, it's visible it is in other people. It's equally invisible to us when we're talking about ourselves, right? Like for so many of us, we have this blind spot with our own pride, with our own arrogance. It's like disguised or, or camouflaged in our eyes. And maybe it's because we don't want to see it. You know, it's like part of that ugly part of us that we just, we don't want to look deeply into. We don't want to think about it. And yet, if left unchecked, like the the riddle says, it can swallow us. Our pride can swallow us. And it can also be incredibly destructive to our relationships, right? Like, we don't like, I don't know about you, I don't like to hang out with people that think they're better than me or they're the best or they're the most important. And it can also be incredibly destructive in our relationship with God. It can be insidious in our relationship with God. One one of the guys that um, I I like to read, he's passed away now, but just a brilliant mind. The way he writes is so so good. It's a guy named C.S. Lewis. And so he wrote a book called Mere Christianity. Some of you have read it. And in there he talks about pride. And this is what he says. He says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. It's essential to all of us. It's part of all of us, right? And it's the utmost evil. It's pride. He says, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. I think about that. That's interesting. That's an interesting way to say it. It's the, it's the anti-God state of mind. And if there's one thing, I've shared this in here before, if there's one thing that God is absolutely clear on, he's clear about a lot of things in the Bible, but if there's one thing that he's most clear on, it's pride. Like he talks about it over and over and over again and how uh, disgusted, I guess is maybe a good word, uh, that he, he is with that. It's like repulsive to him. Go, go to that next slide. Let me just throw a couple of these out here so you see a little bit from God's own heart. It says, God opposes the proud. He stands in opposition to the proud, but shows favor to the humble. That's powerful. How about this? I hate pride and arrogance. I don't know if you can get any more direct than that, right out of God's mouth. A fool's mouth lashes out with pride, but the lips of the wise protect them. Proud people are foolish, right? Out of a fool's mouth, there's pride. The Lord detests all the proud of heart be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Detests. Strong word. Go to that next one. Love the Lord, all his faithful people. The Lord preserves those who are true to him, but the proud he pays back in full. Like there's actually a result of our pride coming, I guess. How about this? For though the Lord is, on, is high, he regards the lowly, 
but the haughty, the prideful, he knows from afar. Like pride, our pride is one of those things that's repulsive. It actually pushes God away from us. Well, today we're going excuse me, going to continue on in the series that we've been in um, over the last few weeks in the book of Daniel. And if you've been with us, we've dug into the first few chapters, and what we said is um, we're going to do about a chapter a week in this book. And so last week we're in chapter three, and today we're going to be in chapter four. And in chapter four, it's all about. It's it's interesting. It's kind of similar to chapter two. Uh, it's all about a dream that this king, the king of a place called Babylon, Babylon was like the world power at the time, a dream that the king of Babylon, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, had that troubled him, it disturbed him. And so a couple weeks ago, we kind of looked, when we were in chapter two, we looked at a similar situation, which the same king had this dream. He wakes up and he's like freaked out by it. And he's got to know what this dream means. And so he goes to, uh, I guess every good king has a group of wise men surrounding him. And so uh, he calls in his wise men, a bunch of them, and he says to them, I got it. Here's my dream. I got to know what this dream means. Here's how I'm going to know if you're telling me the truth. Tell me what my dream was before I tell you and then interpret it for me. And they're like, we can't do that. That's impossible. Nobody can do that except a young man named Daniel, a young Jewish boy named Daniel. So he was another one of the young wise men. And he comes in and God gives him the ability to interpret dreams. And so he comes to Nebuchadnezzar and he tells him what his dream was and he tells him what his dream meant. And Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he finally gets his answer. And so he actually like uplifts Daniel to a place of authority in his kingdom. And then this is, this is interesting too. Nebuchadnezzar like worships God. He's like, wow, your God is the God of gods, right? And he was a rotten king before that, right? Brutal king before that. And so he's like, worships God, but it doesn't last. And so by the time we get to chapter four, 30 to 40 years have jumped by. So in chapter two, Daniel's a young man. He's like, thir- or he's like 14 to 16 years old, somewhere around in there. By the time we get to chapter four, Daniel's no longer a young man. And Nebuchadnezzar's changed a bit too. He's not worshiping God anymore. But now he is known as like the greatest king. He's established himself as the greatest king in the history of Babylon. So he's a guy with wealth and prestige and power and fame and all of those things. And he has a pride to match it. He marvels at himself. He looks out over his kingdom and he marvels at all that he's accomplished. And if you've ever read anything about like Babylonian history, the history of Babylon, like it was an impressive place. Like legit, this guy did amazing things, building projects. One of, one of the seven uh, wonders of the ancient world was in Babylon, these hanging gardens in Babylon. Uh, supposed to have been beautiful. And so he looks out and he sees all this and he's like, wow, look at all that I've done. And he has this great pride. And so Nebuchadnezzar, by the time we get to chapter four, is approaching the end of his life. So this happens somewhere in the last 10 to 12 years of his life. And God gives him one more chance. So you got this brutal king who's done some terrible, terrible things. He had a couple times where he's like, wow, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, da 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 And then he just sort of falls away, and he falls into his old habits. He's approaching the end of his life, and God's like, I'm going to give you one more chance. I'm going to give you one more chance. And so he gives him this dream that was also a vision of the future. And here's what, here's what Nebuchadnezzar has to decide. He has to decide who he wants to rule his life. Who's going to rule my life? 
That's the decision in chapter 4 that Nebuchadnezzar has to have. And I want to challenge you, um, I'm going to challenge you that same way, with that same question toward the end here. I want you to be chewing on that in the back of your head. Like, who, who rules your life? For Nebuchadnezzar, the, the vast majority of his life, he ruled it. He was the one who was in charge. He was the one who made decisions. He was the one that said, I am powerful, I am mighty, look at all that I've done. And he has to make a decision, do I want me to rule my life or do I want God to rule my life? And we have to make that same decision too. So I want you to chew on that question, who's ruling your life, okay? So let's jump into it. So grab a Bible, open it up to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Uh, if you have your Grace Church app, you can open that up and there's a little Bible uh, tab in there as well. So chapter 4 is a pretty long chapter. It's another one of those kind of long chapters in the Bible. And so I'm going to paraphrase a little bit of it with you just for time's sake. But hopefully you had a chance to read it this week. That's one of the things that we've been challenging you with um, throughout the series is that, uh, you know, so the, each of these first six weeks of the series, we're going to tackle a chapter at a time. And we've been challenging you to read the chapter ahead of time and just kind of allow God to begin to stir some things in your heart and to rub some things into your heart that he wants you to get. It also kind of maximizes the time here we have this morning. So I want to encourage you um, this week to check out chapter 5. Next weekend we're going to be in chapter 5. Um, so again, uh, chapter 4 is 30 to 40 years after the last time that Daniel was brought in to interpret this dream of the king. And so Daniel, at this point, somewhere in his like mid-40s to mid-50s, and he's been in a position of power and authority in the kingdom of Babylon for quite some time. So by this point where we pick up, Daniel is the chief of the wise men. So of all of his wise men, or magicians, as ne uh, Nebuchadnezzar calls them sometimes, he is the most important one. He's the chief of all of them. And so he's a guy who's had, by this point, has had the king's respect for years and years and years. And this chapter is an interesting chapter because it's written a little bit differently than some of the other chapters. So most of chapter 4 is written in the first person, okay? Which we might be tempted to think like, okay, first person, we're in the book of Daniel. It must be Daniel who is the first person writing that. But it's actually not. Daniel's not the first person, the writer of this. It's actually Nebuchadnezzar. And so what chapter 4 is, it's kind of this decree that Nebuchadnezzar sends out to the people of his kingdom telling them what has happened to him. And it starts out and it ends the same way. And then in between is a lot of crazy stuff. But it starts out and ends by him praising God. And so you have a guy who's been hard-hearted and he's want to do his own thing and he's the master of his own domain and future and all of that sort of stuff. By the time we get to what happens here in chapter 4, he's changed. He seems to be changed, presumably for the rest of his life. And so the beginning and the end of chapter 4 is all about him praising God. And in between, in between are an incredible seven years of humbling by God. So here's what I want to do. I want to kind of talk us through a little bit of it, and then we'll pick up at verse 10. As we do this, I want to just challenge you to um, begin to take it personally, right? So this is... 2,600 years ago in a completely different part of the world, but man, it's so relevant for us today. So as you think about Nebuchadnezzar, try to disconnect a little bit from the fact that he's the powerful king of Babylon, but think, what could I, how are we alike? What could I learn from him today? Okay? So Nebuchadnezzar's at home. He's in his, his beautiful palace. His home's a little different than our homes. It's a gorgeous palace, and he, it says he's uh, it's like on his roof and he looks out and he's feeling contented and prosperous. Contented and prosperous. That's how he's feeling. And so he decides to take a nap and he lays down. And as he sleeps, he has this dream. 
and this dream terrifies him. And so just like last time in chapter 2, he calls in his wise men. This time, instead of asking them to tell him what the dream was, he tells them what the dream is, and he says, interpret it for me. You guys got to tell me what this means. This is freaking me out a little bit. And they're like, we don't know. I don't know what that dream means. And so he goes back. Apparently, Daniel wasn't part of that initial group of people. He goes back. He calls in the big guns. He calls in Daniel, and he says, Daniel, here's my dream. You got to tell me what it means, okay? This is the dream. Look at verse 10. So this is Nebuchadnezzar writing. These are the visions that I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter. The birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the vision I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Let the stump and its roots remain, uh, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times have passed by by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The Holy One declares the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets, them, sets over them the lowliest of people. Okay, we'll stop right there. So this is the dream, right? Kind of a weird dream. And so it's essentially a dream about a tree, a, a big, giant beautiful tree. It gives shade to everybody. It gives shelter to the animals. It gives sustenance, food to the animals as well. So you got a big, beautiful tree. But all of a sudden, this holy one or this messenger, which is kind of an Old Testament way of saying an angel, an angel comes down and this angel says, chop it down, chop down the tree, trim off the branches, strip it of its leaves, scatter its fruit, but leave the stump. The stump and the roots remain. Everything else, hack it off, right? And then you have like, so so it's all about this tree, this tree being cut down. And then you have like this obscure statement by the angel. So we're talking about a tree and then the angel says, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. And you read, I don't know what you think when you read that. I read that, and I'm like, wait a minute, I thought we were just talking about a tree. Like, all of a sudden, all of a sudden we're, I, guess, I guess we're talking about a person who's going to be changed into an animal, I guess. Like, what sense does that make, right? See, it's a little bit confusing. And then all of a sudden, it's announced, it says that this is announced so that the living may know, essentially, that God's in charge, that God's the big deal, right? He's the one who places kingdom, people over kingdoms, the lowliest over the kingdoms, so the, the living may know. Here's a question for you. Who do you think the living are in that? Daniel actually doesn't talk about that. Who do you think the living are? Well, I'm living. <laughs> so are you. I think it's for us, right? Like this is written down here so that the living, you and me, may know that God is sovereign. And he wants Nebuchadnezzar to know that as well. So Nebuchadnezzar's like, Daniel, that's my dream. Do your thing. 
tell me exactly what it means. And it's, Daniel's response is interesting because immediately he's upset by the dream. He's troubled by the dream. And he says to the king, he's like, listen, I wish that this dream applied to your enemies and not to you because it's not good. And I'm afraid to tell you what it means. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, it's okay. Just tell me what it means, right? I think he knew. I think he had an inkling that he was the tree, that this was really about him. So look at verse 20. So here's the interpret. Here's Daniel's interpretation. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its tops, to, uh, excuse me, top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your Majesty, you are that tree. You've become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. So, so far, so good. You're the tree. You're the great tree, right? Well, the good news doesn't last. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. He says, this is the interpretation. Ready? This is the decree that the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals. Put yourself in his shoes. Like imagine what in the world it would be like to hear this. You'll be driven away from people. You'll live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass. Seven times is kind of a fancy Old Testament way of saying seven years. So seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. I like that statement. Heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what's right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Okay, so stop there. So Nebuchadnezzar's the tree, right? Like he's this big, giant, beautiful tree, and he's a very proud tree. And God essentially says that the tree, Nebuchadnezzar, is going to get cut down. The tree is going to get humbled because it needs to know that the one who planted it, the one who watered it, the one who pruned it, the one who caused it to grow is a much bigger deal than the tree itself, right? The tree is only a tree because of the one who planted it and watered it and pruned it and caused it to grow. You tracking with me? Right? So he's saying, you think that you're amazing, but you're not the one who made you you. I'm the one who made you you. And so in plain terms, God says to him, Nebuchadnezzar, here's what's going to happen. You're going to lose your mind. You're going to lose your mind. You're going to think that you're an animal. You're actually going to start to look like an animal. Like it's a, it's a strange visual, right? Like I don't know if he was a really hairy guy to begin with or what, and his hair like grows out all over him, but it's like it gets thicker and furrier. He kind of develops, his fingernails kind of turn into claws, and you're going to live like an animal for seven years. 
seven years. I was reading a little bit about this in one of the commentaries that I was reading. It, uh, it said that this is actually a like, legit uh, mental disorder, real disorder. It's called like, lycanthropy. And so uh, a lot of times it's applied to, like we, we talk about it in terms of werewolves, you know, like somebody thinks that they're a wolf and they like, maybe when the, when the moon is full or something like that, you know, and they live like a wolf and they act like a wolf or whatever. But it's a real legit disorder that apparently God causes Nebuchadnezzar to feel and experience, not to become a werewolf. I mean, when you read kind of how he describes him, it almost sounds like he's like a vulture or something like that. Right? This is an extreme case. And so Daniel hears this from God. And, he, and I think this is fascinating too. So he's a guy, Daniel was a young man when Nebuchadnezzar and his people snatched him from his own country to bring him as a captive over to Babylon. Right? Nebuchadnezzar was a bad dude, bad dude. And yet by this point in his life, Daniel seems to actually really care about him. He cares about the king and he seems like he wants the best for the king. And so he pleads with him to change his ways. Stop acting so wicked. Start doing the right thing. Stop oppressing people. And who knows, maybe God won't allow this to happen to you. Well, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't listen to him. About a year later, he's on his palace roof. He's looking out, and he essentially is like, I am pretty impressive. <laughs> like, look at all this. Look at my kingdom. Look how amazing and beautiful. And I've done it all by my own strength. I've done it all by my own power. I'm glorious. And at that exact moment, it says, a voice from heaven says, okay, you still haven't learned. You still haven't learned, have you? It's all going to be taken away from you now. And you're going to live like an animal for seven years until you realize that God rules, that heaven rules, until you acknowledge that God is sovereign and powerful and you are who you are, not because of you, but because of him, right? Look at verse 33. So this voice from heaven says this, these things, and immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven, until, listen to this, his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and, the na and his nails like the claws of a bird. Is it weird that every time, I probably read that passage like 20 times over the last week, every time I read it, that old Nelly Furtado comes, song comes into my mind. I'm like a bird. That's all I'm talking about. Every time I read it, that's what comes into my mind. He's like a bird, right? Like he's kind of like a bird. Anyway, I'm sorry. It's embarrassing, I'm sorry. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar lives that way. For seven years, seven years. So up to that point, he spent his entire life thinking he was something special, right? Accomplishing amazing things, doing amazing things. And he was proud and he was strong in his own eyes because his kingdom has grown, it's magnificent, and he was the one who was responsible for it. He marvels at all he's accomplished. Let me ask you a question. Who was the ruler of Nebuchadnezzar's life up to that point? Him right? wasn't God. He was the king, so it wasn't any other human being. It was him. And for whatever reason, God wanted him to know. He doesn't do this with everybody, but with him, for whatever reason, God wanted him to know that he was wrong, that he was who he was. He was where he was at because heaven rules, because God rules, not because he rules. And he wanted him to acknowledge that that was true. 
He says, no, life's going to get real, real hard until you accept that, until you get that. And, and, and I think this is interesting too. It takes him seven years living like an animal before, he fi- before it says he finally looks up, until he looks up to heaven and acknowledges that heaven rules. And I want you to see kind of his response here. Look at verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. This is kind of the, the bookend, right? The back one. It's all about praise. I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him forever. It says that his kingdom was restored to him. It's actually even better and more glorious than before. When he finally got it, when he finally accepted that he was where he was, he was who he was because God had put him there, then it was restored to him and it was even better. Verse 37, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And then listen to this last sentence. From, from one of the proudest men to ever live. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That's, that's chapter four. That's what chapter four is about. So I want to talk about this, because this is, this is like one of those chapters. I love the book of Daniel, all of it. Uh, but chapter four is like one of those ones that really jumps out to me and kind of strikes my heart. And so there's a few things I want to pull out with the rest of the time that we have here. Remaining. So if you're a note taker, I would love for you to write down three words, three words in a sentence, okay? So here, here are the three words. And leave space in between them because I'm going to attach a sentence to each one. Brokenness, submission, and rule. Brokenness, submission, and rule. When I look at this chapter four in Daniel, these are the things that jump out to me. Brokenness, submission and rule. And then here's, here's kind of a sentence that I think is true that we learned from Daniel chapter 4. We have to be broken before we can submit to the rule of God in our lives. We have to be broken before we can submit to the rule of God in our lives. And I want to I kind of flesh that out for us. So we just, so we just read chapter 4. I think it's kind of fleshed out a bit in chapter 4, but let me do it in a different way um, with kind of an extended metaphor. So, um, I, and I'll do it with a puppy. We all like puppies, right? It's the best story. So um, I, I've shared a couple times that we got a puppy uh, not too long ago, about two months ago. Her, so this is her. She's this one. Not to be confused with this one. Anyway, uh, so her name is Bailey. She's a little yellow lab dog. She was eight weeks old when we got her. Uh, We've had her for about two months, so she's about four weeks old now. And it's been really interesting training Bailey. So, you know, like, it's a a puppy, and and it takes a lot of work. So it's not always easy, but it's been really interesting. And I never thought I would say this, but as we are training Bailey, like, this really struck me this week as I've been digging into chapter four. There's a lot of myself that I see in this dog, right? Like, this is ridiculous. I know this is silly, but, but, but hang with me here. So, so, like, labs are the most popular dogs to have as pets, right? They're really good dogs, and there's a reason for that. This is, this is my third lab that we've had, and they're great dogs. Like, as they get older, they're super obedient. They're very smart. They're gentle. They're really good with kids. They're fun. You know, they have energy. They, have, they learn, all that sort of stuff. So they're really good dogs when they're kids. As puppies, they're terrible. Like, they, they are the worst puppies. They are notoriously stubborn, right? And so they have this strong, strong will 
where they want things the way that they want things. And you got to break that, right? And so, like, Bailey would, you know, would, like, they want to, she wants to walk where she wants to walk, you know? Like, she would, she will pull you exactly where she wants to go, you know? So we're trying to train her how to walk her. She will go potty wherever she wants to go potty, you know? And you're like, no, you can't go right there. It'll take you outside. She will eat when, like, she, she wants to eat, which is all the time. Like she, she would eat all of the time if we gave her an endless amount of food, right? Like that's what she would do. And she would chew on whatever she wants to chew on. And she will do all of those things exactly unless as her master, we step in, right? And we do something about it until we establish dominance with her. So I think about it this way, like her will has to be broken, right? Like I don't want to break the dog, but like her will has to be broken so that she understands that she doesn't rule the house. Like she doesn't get whatever she wants whenever she wants it. That has to be broken in her. And the way that that's broken in her is a few things. Discipline, right? And so the primary way we discipline the dog, like we don't smack the dog or anything, but the primary way we discipline her is when she does something wrong, we put her in her cage. So like the, the, what she, so in the, in the hierarchy of our family, it's me, my wife, uh, my son and my daughter, right? And, and then Bailey. In Bailey's view, the hierarchy goes this way. Me, my wife, my son, Bailey, and then my daughter. Like she thinks she's above my daughter and so she'll mess with my daughter. She's eight years old and she'll nip at her or whatever. And there's times we gotta go, okay, in your cage. And we take her into our cage. There's other times we have to use a firm word and be like, no, Bailey, no, right? We gotta be strong with her that way. There's other times when we're teaching her things or we're kind of trying to break her will that we have to bring a little discomfort in her life, right? And so uh, if she jumps on people, you know, you got to like stick your knee out, not too hard to hurt her or anything, doesn't hurt her, but you stick her, your knee out so that she learns and she doesn't jump anymore. We got this, um, this, this leash thing called a gentle leader. <laughs> <laughs> you ever had it? It's great. It like goes, so we're teaching her how to walk, you know, and she, instead of pulling. So when she pulls, this, it's like a muzzle thing that goes over, over her mouth. And when she pulls, it's really annoying to her. It's like really uncomfortable for her. And yet those are things that we have to do. Like I have to make things uncomfortable for her so that we teach her that she needs to fall under our authority, right? And what we're finding is that when we can break her stubborn will with some things, then she begins to submit, right? She begins to submit to our authority because she's the dog. We're the humans, right? Like, we don't need her. We got along fine for eight years as a family of four without her. All of a sudden, she's in our family. We don't need her, but she needs us, right? She's the dog. She needs us. So it could be very dangerous for her if she doesn't have masters, she doesn't have humans that are saying, no, 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 you can't run into the street. Right? She would just run right into the street. She'd get hit by a car. She wouldn't even think about it. Right? And so we're like, no, no, no. You're a dog. You don't know this, but as your master, you're not allowed to do that. I'm protecting her. Like She can't go buy food. She needs us to buy food. She doesn't have thumbs. She couldn't like grab a cup and scoop it into her bowl anyway. It's a big difference between us and dogs. Right? We got opposable thumbs. All right, so we're, she's a dog. Dogs are awesome animals, but they're not humans. Humans are greater. So these are the things that I'm learning about, you know, this dog. She thinks she's got, like, it's going to be my way. She's got this strong will that we have to break that in her. No, no, no. It's not your way. When that begins to be broken, she can submit to us. And then when those things happen, she can finally acknowledge and accept that her master's rule over her, right? 
And when you have, when a dog has a good master, think about this, when a dog has a good master, a dog has like the best life possible for a dog, right? Because they're going to get, they're going to have companionship, they're going to get played with, they're going to have exercise, they're going to have all the food and love that they need. When a dog has a good master, hopefully you're beginning to understand this metaphor, right? When a dog has a good master, it's the best life possible for the dog. All right, stop, listen. If this is true with us and dogs, how much more is this true with God and us? Right? You tracking with me? If, if a dog is so much less than its master, it needs its will to be broken. It needs to submit to the rule of the master. How much more is this true between us and God? We're like the dogs, right? The Bible actually never calls us a dog. It calls us sheep. Sheep are dumber than dogs, right? Dogs actually train sheep, sheep dogs. That's what they do. Sheep are not intelligent animals. And 100% of the time, they will die if they don't acknowledge and follow their shepherd. So dogs have masters. Sheep have shepherd. They need their shepherd. And so do we. And God calls himself our good shepherd. See, see Nebuchadnezzar, he was kind of like, sounds silly to say it this way, but he's kind of like a stubborn, strong-willed puppy. And, and mercifully, God gave him one more chance to be broken, right? God broke him before him so that he would finally submit and he would finally acknowledge and accept God's rule, God's power and authority. I think about that, I think, guys, we're exactly the same. Like, we're not that different. We can be just like Nebuchadnezzar. We can be stubborn, strong-willed puppies and think that we should rule in our lives instead of turning it over to our master, to our shepherd, to our good shepherd, who provides for us, like when we follow him, he provides for us the absolute best life possible. Let, let me end with this. Let me end with, with asking you three questions. They go along with those three words, brokenness, submission, and rule. Here's the first question. Are you broken before God? Are you, are you broken before God? That is a really, really important question. Because we can be just like stubborn, strong-willed puppies. And we can think, no, I want to walk where I want to walk. You know, I want to eat when I want to eat. I want to chew on what I want to chew on. And we don't realize how much we need our master. All that our master does. And until we're broken before him, until our will, our own stubborn will is broken before him, we will not live the best life possible. Far from it. But the life that our good shepherd offers us is so much better, right? Are you broken before God? And I'll say this too. It's not a one-time decision. Like it's an ongoing decision. It's one that we make every day because we're stubborn. And we go, yep, today I am broken before you. Your will, not my own. I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. And then tomorrow we wake up and we're like, I feel rebellious today. I want my will today. I want my future today. God, why are you allowing all this stuff to happen to me? How about this? Do you think that maybe God might be, some of us are going through hard stuff in here. Do you think that maybe God might be allowing some of the hard stuff or even bringing some of the hard stuff in our lives so that maybe we would finally wake up and see how much we need him.
so that we would finally be broken before him. And then I can't, I can't do it on my own. I need you, God. And it's not just brokenness for brokenness sake, but he wants to break us for a purpose. And that purpose is submission. Submission in our culture is like kind of a dirty word. You know, it's like, no, no, no I don't, I don't want to submit to anybody. I'm going to be strong and independent. I am in charge. And it's like, no, no, no. Submission is the thing that we should have before God. Because just like a puppy and its master, he is so much greater than us. Submission is very appropriate for a weaker person to have with someone much greater, right? And there's no one greater than God. So here's my second question to you. Have you submitted to God? Have you submitted to God? Are you broken before God? Your will, not your will anymore, but his. And have you submitted to him? And it kind of goes along with the third one, right? If we're broken before him, if we submit to him, here's the third one. Are you giving him rule over your life? Which is another day-by-day decision. It's not a one-time thing. Day by day we go, no, not my will, God, but yours be done. Not my way, but your way. All the stuff that I've accomplished in the past, all the things that are happening right now, my future give to you and I hold it with an open hand because I allow you rulership over my life guys the, the riddle is right you know we can sometimes we have to swallow our pride sometimes pride can swallow us if we're not aware and if we're not careful but the antidote for us as Christians is really simple be broken before God submit to him and allow him to rule over our lives. When we do that, it's the best life possible. That's what he gives us, the best life possible as our good shepherd. And so I pray that that's true in your life.